Now, today we're continuing our look at the book of Romans, and we're jumping into a new section of the book. So the first five chapters, we talked about a variety of things there, but as we jump into uh, chapter 6, and really as we go from chapter 6 through chapter 8, we're going to see some common themes. But one of the things that you'll notice in chapter 6, starting with verse 1, is this idea of rewriting the story of your life. And so we're going to look at verse 1 down to verse 14 today as it discusses this concept. So look with me, if you will, Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 1. This is what it says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his." We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to gather together this morning and to look at your word together. And Lord, as we look at this portion of scripture, we pray that we, that by your grace, that we would understand it, that we would grow from it, that we would recognize that you seek to rewrite the story of our lives as we trust in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we pray that we would understand the concepts related to that that you speak about in this portion of your Word. And we're grateful, Lord, for the privilege to be able to look at these things together today. We commit this time to your care, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the course of the past decade, or even just a little bit less than a decade, I've had the, the privilege on occasion to teach and speak. Uh, so I, I've spoken and I've taught several courses at the university that I graduated from. And the classes that I teach, they tend to fall into three different categories, either counseling, theology, or church planting. Those are the three categories that they tend to have me come 
and teach about. And so I enjoy teaching on those subjects. So usually I'm glad to, to honor that request. And I do my best to try and fill each class with useful content. I don't want it to just be something that just takes up time or fills a block on a schedule. I want it to be very useful for the students that are a part of that. But as much as I enjoy teaching, and I very much enjoy it, as much as I enjoy it, I would be lying if I said that I love to grade papers. I do not love to grade papers. Now, some students are excellent paper writers. Some are excellent writers. I, I'm very impressed with uh, some of their abilities to uh, just really uh, convey thought, convey ideas. But when you're grading papers, it's a very lengthy process. There's a lot to read. And it's obvious that some students definitely put a little bit more effort in than others. But still, I think it's valuable to learn how to communicate an idea and to articulate an idea. So in certain contexts... When students will maybe submit a paper that needs a little bit more work or could be communicated a little bit better, I tend to give them the opportunity to rewrite it. If it's not quite right, I, I let them rewrite it and then improve their grade. Now, some students take me up on that and are happy for that opportunity. And other students look at that and they're like, yeah, so I think I'm good with my C. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, that's fine. But I'm at least giving them the opportunity to rewrite the paper and get a better grade. And I bring that up because when, we, when you look at this portion of Romans chapter 6, so we're just looking at the first half of this chapter today. One of the things that you probably noticed as we look through this is that the Lord is giving us the opportunity to do a rewrite with our lives. He's giving us the opportunity to do a rewrite with our lives. Prior to coming to know him, we were spiraling downward. We were bent on defiance toward him. We were idolizing our own ideas as if our own ideas were superior to his omniscience. We were lost. We didn't really want to be found. And that was the state that we were in. And to a certain degree, I think we were perfectly fine staying in that state. It was almost like, you know, just ignorance of what we didn't even know. But through Christ... We're now given the opportunity to experience a full rewrite of our life story. And the story that he's crafting in your life and in my life as we trust in him is a masterpiece. And the Apostle Paul brings up in Romans chapter 6 some of the details of what this rewrite looks like. And one of the things that it tells us here is the Lord's rewriting the story of our lives is that we don't have to live in what we were rescued out of. So think about that concept for a second before I reread a couple of verses. We don't have to live in what we were rescued out of. Look again at verse 1 and a few of the verses following that. Again, it says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pause there for just a second. 
So in the previous section of the book of Romans, particularly where we were last week and the week before, you have the Apostle Paul speaking a lot about grace. That's a prevailing subject of the things that he's talking about. And he made it abundantly clear that even though we were born sinners, and even though we lived in continual rebellion against God, God chose to show us grace. God the Father showed us his unmerited favor by sending Jesus Christ, his Son, to suffer the penalty for our sin, to forgive our sin, and to transform us into a new creation. And in Christ, we who once hated God are made righteous by him and taught to love him. So that's what Christ has accomplished in our lives as we've trusted in him. But unfortunately, particularly because we didn't have to earn this amazing blessing from God, it can be very easy for us to treat it as if it's something that isn't very valuable because we were given it freely. We didn't have to earn it. We didn't have to deserve it. It was given to us. And sometimes when things are just given to us, we have the unfortunate tendency, instead of being grateful, to treat them like they're not valuable. And sometimes God's grace is actually treated that way. Sometimes we mistakenly treat it like it's not that valuable because we're not thinking about how much it cost Him to show it to us. Paul even speculated here, and this is kind of what he's saying in these opening verses, but he speculates that some people might actually suggest that maybe we should sin more and more so that we could do God the favor of giving him more and more opportunities to show us even more grace. You know, maybe we should just sin more and more because does that not give God opportunity to display his grace? And so Paul surmised that some people might actually suggest that kind of idea, but as I hope we would recognize that's a faulty viewpoint. It's a viewpoint that's certainly not in line with God's heart. He didn't call us to sin more and more as an excuse to to, provoke Him to show more grace. That's not the idea behind God's grace. He didn't rescue us for us to then remain right in what He had taken us out of. When Christ saved us, when Christ made us alive in Him, the Scripture tells us that we died to sin meaning sin no longer has mastery over us. Our greatest pleasure is not derived from indulging in sin. Our hearts are not satisfied by embracing sin. When we trusted in Christ, the Scripture tells us that we were baptized by the Holy Spirit and united with Him. And then in obedience, what we did was we followed that up by being baptized with water, which serves as a visible illustration of that spiritual reality. And so Paul tells us here, he's using baptism as, an, as this imagery to display what took place in our lives as we trusted in Christ. But Paul tells us here that we were baptized into his death. Christ died for our sins, and baptism is showing that we openly identify with what he suffered on our behalf. And then when we were raised out of the water, that was to display the fact that we who were dead and buried have now been raised to new life. Christ has accomplished this for us spiritually. We've identified with Him and with His work publicly. And now we've been set free from sin's bondage. We've been set free to live a new life. We are no longer under the bondage of sin. All this to say, you know, when you're looking at what Paul says here in these opening verses, all this to say... We don't have to go back to the life that we lived before we knew Christ. 
You don't have to go back to that. I don't have to go back to that. You don't have to continue living in what he rescued you out of. And I bring that up because I think that that's something that we wrestle with. Sometimes it's easy to go back to things that are familiar. But it would, in fact, be foolish for us to return back to sin slavery now that Christ has set us free. Consider what it tells us in John chapter 8. You have Jesus saying here, it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, I don't know what you want to be called. I don't know what you want to be called by Jesus. I guess I, guess I could guess what you would want to be called by Jesus. And I'm certain that you would not want to be called a slave to sin. But here Christ is saying, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. In Galatians chapter 5, it says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So think of sin as a form of slavery, and think of your neck being braced in a yoke, and you being tugged around in slavery to sin to do whatever sin's bidding happens to be. And Christ is saying, I didn't rescue you for you to keep that yoke on your neck. I didn't rescue you for you to walk back into what I had pulled you out of. I didn't set you free from prison for you to become a prisoner all over again. When I was in high school, I made a big mistake. I owned a car, and I would deliver newspapers every morning at 4.50 in the morning. And I'll tell you what, that was one of my favorite jobs that I ever had growing up. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. Uh, I would get up, the whole world was asleep. I was the only one that was awake. And I would race myself to see how fast I could get that route done, to see if I could get it done in under an hour. And then I would treat myself either to like a chocolate milk or something like that at the convenience store at the end of my route. And it was my morning routine. Six days a week, I would deliver papers at 4.50 in the morning. And I'd go home and I'd sleep a little bit more. And then I'd get up for school and go to school. And um, so as I was delivering those papers, 4.50 every morning... I would get to certain places on my route, and I was driving, and so I would drive to certain spots, and then I would park the car. But when you're parking a car, you should put the car in park, should you not? This is like common sense, isn't it? But the person that had trained me to do that route, now I didn't know how to drive a stick at the time. He drove a stick, and you know when you have a stick, you know, you just, you, you could put it in, you put it in neutral, and you put the emergency brake on, and I would see him do this, and I was like, oh, I just need to put the emergency brake on. I don't need to put it in park. Not with an automatic. Dope, right? And so, um, you know, I'm doing this route. I'd park my car, put the, I'd put the emergency brake on, and I'd leave it in drive while I'd get out, and I'd make deliveries to several houses. And then I'd get back in the car. I'm seeing some of the men laugh. Listen, it was a different season in my life. I wouldn't still do it, but I did it then. And one morning after following this routine, I was up on the steps of a house putting their paper inside their, their door like they liked it. And I turn around and I happen to notice my car inching toward their garage door. Their driveway was on an incline and I saw that my car was inching toward their garage door and picking up steam as it was going down their driveway and also realizing I am powerless to do anything about this car. And I just stood there on the steps and watched and hoped for the best. And I was like, <sighs> and it smashed through their garage door. 
was already on their steps, so I just knocked on the door. Not like I needed to knock on the door, but I knocked on the door. I woke the owners up. I say I woke the owners up. I think my car woke the owners up. I gave them my information. (laughs) Garage door looked a little bit different, a little draftier in their house that morning. I pulled away, shaking my head. My car was still drivable. It wasn't all that damaged. Their, Their door took the brunt of the damage. I finished my route. I made a report at the police station, and I wished I was dead. Uh, Literally, I remember that moment. I was like, I wish I was dead, or that the rapture would occur right now, because I knew how much trouble I was about to be in, and I thought, this is terrible. This is the, I think this is the worst mistake I've ever made. And to pay off the cost of that door, my father forced me to work at his grocery store, for seven months. My dad owned a grocery store, and for many years I had worked in that grocery store, and one of the tasks that was given to me as I got older, it was my job, in addition to stocking the shelves and working the register and making deliveries, it was now also my job to clean up the meat department at the end of the night when the store closed. Now, if you could think about tasks you would enjoy in a grocery store and tasks you would not enjoy, I can just confess to you, I did not enjoy the task of cleaning up the meat department at the end of the night. It was my least favorite thing that I ever had to do in that store. And I remember at the end of my junior year of high school, I had kind of washed my hands of it literally and figuratively and said, all right, I'm done, Dad. Like, I'm not going to work here my senior year. I've got other plans. I got another job lined up, this paper route, all that. And for seven months, he said, guess what? You get to be my debt slave for the next seven months paying off the garage door that you just crashed your car through. I just quit working there. And now for seven more months, I had to work there, cleaning up the meat department. Every night I worked, cleaning it up, grumbling under my breath, recognizing I was his debt slave and I had no other option to pay off that door. That's how the door was going to get paid. Would have been nice if somebody came in and paid my debt and set me free, and that's not what happened. But spiritually speaking, that's exactly what Christ has done for us. He cleared our account. Think of this in a personal way, not just a theoretical way. Think of this in regard to your own life. He cleared your account of the debt that you owed, and He gave you freedom in Him. And it makes no sense to crave slavery once he sets you free. It makes no sense to go back to it. It makes no sense to desire it once he sets you free. So if you have been set free in Christ, don't submit yourself again to a yoke of sin slavery. That's what the Apostle Paul's teaching in these opening verses. Don't live in what you've been rescued out of. You don't have to go back to it because... Through faith in Christ, your debt has been wiped away, and you've been united with Christ, and you've been set free. Live in the freedom that you've been given as one who's been united with Him through faith. Now, speaking of this idea of being united with Christ through faith, there's some specific things that verse 5 and the verses following that tell us about that. And it says here in verse 5 of Romans chapter 6, it says, For if we have been united with Him... In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pause there for just a a moment. So when you think about your life, in relationships, in the workplace, even in the church, unity can be something that sometimes we struggle to maintain. It's not always an easy thing to maintain. Sometimes it feels so rare that when it actually does occur, we're actually surprised by it. In our culture, I was thinking about this the other day as I'm officiating a wedding right here on this this platform and and, um, just seeing a, a couple covenant in marriage before the Lord. But in our culture, one of the greatest examples of the effects of lack of unity is often displayed in marriage. Instead of living like people who are permanently united as one, Frequently, you'll see spouses veer off into their own interests and maybe even sever that covenant. And maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Maybe you've experienced that lack of unity uh, taking place either in your marriage or in your workplace or in other kinds of relationships. But if you've experienced that lack of unity in various relationships, don't let that cloud your, your understanding of the nature of our union with Christ. The union we experience with Christ, as it's described in this passage, it's permanent in nature. It's a union or a marriage that was initiated by Him. And it has lasting effects that reverberate into eternity. And when we consider what it, what it tells us in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 11, those are the verses we just read, as it's speaking about this union we have with Christ, in this passage we're told that we've been united with Christ in His death, We've been united with Him in His resurrection. We've been crucified with Him. We've been set free from sin by Him. And it also tells us that we'll live forever with Him. We're also told that death has no dominion over Christ. And since we're united to Christ by faith, effectively, death will have no dominion over us either. We've been made forever alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's what that passage is speaking about. So what it's telling us is the case in your life and in my life, the moment we trust in Christ. And when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, I'm reminded of the fact that the Lord has not left me powerless in this world. Again, if we look at this portion of Scripture in a personal way, and I think that's how we should be looking at this, not just in a general way, but in a personal way, it's saying that you have been united with Christ through faith. If you're united with Christ through faith, that means you are not left powerless in this world. If I'm united with Christ, I have not been abandoned. If I'm united with Him, I know whose team I'm on. He's brought me onto His team. I know who will come to my defense when I need defense. I know who will protect me in the midst of what I deal with in this world. That's the personal way we can read the effect of this union we have with Christ. Consider some of the examples, by the way, that were given elsewhere in Scripture of what it looks like when when a person is united to the Lord. 
and how the Lord treats someone who is united to him. In Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says this. It says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Like what it tells us in Isaiah 41.10 as well. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's how the Lord treats those who have been united to him. That's the pattern he shows us throughout Scripture. Looking after his children, defending us, coming to our aid, offering us his strength, reminding us that in the midst of everything that we go through this side of heaven, we are not abandoned by him because we have been united to him by faith. And there's many, many examples of that that we could see all throughout Scripture. And Scripture reveals to us that the moment that we trust in Christ, so again, thinking of this in a personal way, the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, you were united with Him. And this union is permanent, and it's inseparable. This union means you do not have to succumb to, your, to the bidding of your spiritual adversary, the devil. The devil is a defeated foe. That's what Scripture reveals to us. The devil is a defeated foe. You have been united by faith to Christ, the victor. So at one point, we lived like... Do you ever, do you ever have a marionette puppet when you were a kid? thought they were fascinating, and at one point, uh, I don't remember who bought it for me, but somebody bought me a marionette puppet. So I had one of those things where you've got the sticks and the strings that are attached to the puppet, and you can make the thing move around and do stuff, and I thought it was really clever, and I thought it was very interesting, but you're not a puppet, and I'm not a puppet. And the strings that we once had that were tethering us to Satan as he's kind of pulling the strings and influencing us to do his bidding and encouraging us to to go through life as if we're uh, just completely defeated and completely uh, enslaved to do his bidding, those strings have been snipped by Christ. We're not yoked to sin. We're not yoked to Satan any longer. We find freedom in Christ. We've been given a new purpose. Your life and my life has been transformed. And instead of being an instrument that is effectively just doing the bidding of sin. Through the power of Christ that now lives within all who trust in Him, we've been, we've been made instruments of His righteousness. Look at what it tells us in verse 12 down to verse 14. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. I love verse 14. Let me reread reread that verse again. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So everything the Lord blesses us with on this earth whatever blessing He's given you. It's all a temporary stewardship. Every single blessing He's given you, you know, that is earthly in nature, 
These are temporary stewardships. So for a brief season, we're allowed to look after and utilize resources and time and our physical bodies. And we should be using whatever he has entrusted to us for his glory. That's obviously easier said than done. It's much easier for me to say we should use whatever the Lord's entrusted to us for his glory than to actually follow through on doing that. It's much easier to adopt a mindset where sin reigns in our bodies because that's the primary example of our world or the primary example of our culture that is reinforced for us every day. It's presented before us daily, and uh, that's the mindset that can become very easy for us to adopt. That's what we're most uh, adopt. That's what we're most used to seeing, an idea of basically just kind of adopting a worldly mindset. But again, a quick look at Romans chapter 6 reminds us that that's not God's desire for us. He's rewriting the story of our lives, and this chapter that the Lord's writing in your life and in my life should look much different from the earlier pages. Sin is no longer my master, but it used to be. I used to obey it willingly. And when I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking, all right, well, how did this look? You know, if you could, when, when you kind of look back to a season where you would say, yeah, you know, at that point I was still uh, under the puppetry of sin. What did it look like when sin was my master? What did it look like when I was obeying it so, so willingly? And I think one of the most obvious fruits of that in my life in particular was anger. And what I mean by that was this. I was, uh, you know, as I, I kind of was going through life, I remained angry over a variety of conflicts that actually took place in my family as a child that I had no control over. I was angry about circumstances that I couldn't change. I was angry over the fact that I felt like I was suffering because of the decisions of others, and I watched as I carried that anger into my adulthood. And I've learned something very interesting about what's really going on inside of a man when he displays anger. He's also sad. But he knows it's not as socially acceptable for him to show his sadness. So he expresses the manly emotion of anger instead. And if he isn't careful, he lets it control him. And as I'm thinking about this from a personal standpoint, think about this idea, don't let sin master you. God hasn't given me a mouth or a mind with the goal that I use them as instruments of anger. This mouth he's given me, this mind he's given me, is not to be used as an instrument of anger. He's called me to use my body. He's called me to use my time. He's called me to use my resources as instruments of righteousness because they aren't really mine anyway. Just borrowing something that was created by him and in the end, still belongs to him. And that's the same for every single one of us. We were dead in sin, but through Christ we have been brought from death to life. And we certainly have the option to live like we're still dead if we choose, but that's the most idiotic and wasteful choice a person can make with their life. And if you're truly bent on wasting your life instead of living in the joyful freedom that Christ supplies, go ahead, 
But understand this. When your time is done here, you won't be missed by many people when you're gone. And when they reminisce about the legacy that you leave in your wake, they will tell their children, remember so-and-so? Try not to be like him. But if you know Christ, please also know this. He has saved you with the goal to put you to purposeful use. He has set you free on this earth as an agent of His righteousness. That's who you are if you are in Christ. You've been set free on this earth as an agent of the righteousness of Christ. He's placed you in proximity intentionally with people who are hurting, with people who are depressed, with people who need a visible example of the grace of God being displayed through your life. You presently know people who feel discarded and unloved. We all wrote down names. We could all come up with a list of names of people who right now at this very moment feel discarded and unloved. People who are hurting and depressed. Jesus wants to show others a taste of his goodness through the divine work that he's empowering through you. Consider the reason why he even saved you to begin with. Why did he save you to begin with? Why did he save me to begin with? Why does he save anyone? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 tells us this. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand. We should walk in them. Meaning that God prepared these things ahead of time, even before he laid the foundations of the earth, for you to walk in these things as his instrument of righteousness in the context that he's placed you in. It is on purpose that you live during this generation. It is on purpose that you live where you live. And it's on purpose that you know who you know. And He has intentionally sent you into the lives of others to be an instrument of His righteousness. That's what's being communicated in a portion of Scripture like this. We have been made instruments of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what He's called our lives to be dedicated toward. You've been given new life in Jesus Christ. And the Lord's rewriting the story of your life as you trust in Him. You don't have to live in what you've been rescued out of. You are united in Christ. And He has your back in every situation. Jesus is setting you free to be an instrument of His righteousness in every situation context he places you in. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to read it together today. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your love and all the different ways that you choose to bless us. Lord, we know we don't deserve these blessings. We don't deserve your goodness. We don't deserve uh, the grace that you've shown us in so many ways, and, and Lord, because you've displayed it so freely to us, it can be very easy for us to start cheapening it in, in value, in, at least in our minds. But Lord, we're grateful for what you've done for us, we're grateful for who you are, and we're grateful for the reminders that we receive when we look at a portion, a portion of Scripture like we just looked at together. Lord, you're rewriting the story of our lives. You haven't called us to go back to what you've rescued us out of. 
You've set us free. We're no longer slaves to the things that we used to be compelled to obey. We're now part of your family. You've made us instruments of your righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that that would be exactly what people have the privilege to see as you utilize our lives and our time and our resources, the things that you've entrusted to us temporarily that ultimately belong to you completely. So, Lord, thank you for this privilege. Thank you for not leaving us where you found us. And, Lord, when we're tempted to start going back to those things, we pray that we would remember all that you've accomplished on our behalf. We pray that we would remember the fact that you died to atone for our sin. You paid a very costly price so that our sin could be covered. And Lord, when we're tempted to go back to what you've purchased our freedom from, we pray that we would be reminded of the costly price that you paid so that our sin would lose its allure. And so we would live in the freedom that you've secured for us. So thank you, Lord, for these reminders from your word today. Thank you for your love. And thank you, Lord, for not leaving us where you found us. Lord, we pray that throughout the course of today, throughout the course of this week, and ultimately throughout the course of our lives, that we would walk in your love as instruments of your grace and mercy. And we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name.